Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast. And today, we're speaking with Mateusz Struzinski, an associate professor at the Institute of Classical Philology at the Adam Mickiewicz University in Poznan, in Poland. A man who knows a thing or two about Plotinus and specifically, or, or very interestingly, is interested in spiritual practice in Plotinus. Hello. Mateusz, thank you Thanks so much for having for, me. Yeah, thank you for joining us. It's much appreciated. So let's talk about the Plotinian human being, Plotinus, someone in Plotinus's worldview, where they're at, where they need to get to, and how it all happens. Uh, I think a good way to, to start is to realize that actually Plotinus gives two perspectives or two ways of, of looking at things. I guess one way it could be called the microcosmic perspective uh, and how we as humans fit into generally into the order of things or into reality. And uh, that's a more, I would say, ob objective perspective, uh, this, this microcosmic one. And the other one could be called the microcosmic. And this is more subjective and it's obviously more connected to to philosophy understood as, as a way of life or as, as practice, not only theory. When you look at, uh, at things from this, this macrocosmic, more, more objective perspective, you could say that a, a human being is uh, just as multilayered, just as complex as the whole reality or the, or, or the whole cosmos. So you can basically find in, in the human being basically the same levels or the same layers which you can find also in the whole cosmos. So, for instance, uh, the, Plotinus gives various uh, classifications or, or he, he is sometimes more detailed, sometimes less. So, so for instance, we could talk about intellect as uh, the true self or the core part of, of the human person or the human subject. Intellect then being the noose. Right. Yeah, in mm. Greek, yeah, yeah. And we can also talk about the body or or maybe a better word would be the organism that is not just the body as a piece of matter uh, but uh, the organism, the living being endowed with uh, with life. And the third element which joins together intellect which is completely incorporeal and has nothing to do with matter with the material body is the soul here understood as one of the levels, because Plotinus uses words in different meanings. So uh, the soul is, is a good, uh, in, in Greek, it's, it's a good example of, of the word which can be used in, in various ways. But here, uh, it's the, the middle level joining intellect and the body, or it can be seen as a, as a way in which our intellect expresses itself downwards, as Plotinus would say, towards the material realm and towards the body, making the body a living organism. So those three levels, I guess it, it, it would be the most general way to, to divide us as, as human beings. And as I said, the same levels can be easily found on the macrocosmic level because the, the first product of the good, which is the, the first principle, is also nous, intellect, we might say the universal intellect to, to make a distinction. Then we have soul in general as a kind of expression of intellect oriented towards 
the material realm. And we have the material universe, the material cosmos, which uh, is basically also a living organism uh, or the body of the, the cosmic soul or the world soul. Right. So there's a very interesting um, mirroring going on between humans and reality. And Plotinus makes some very intriguing statements like when he says each human being is a uh, noetos cosmos. So each one of us is a, a noetic world, let's say, um, which presumably has everything in it that the cosmic noose has in it, right? Sort of by definition. Yes, and, and I think uh, we could just as well say that we as microcosms, we are in the macrocosm, so we are within this this universal reality, but we can just easily say that this whole reality is in some way in us. So the, the macrocosm is in a way uh, in the microcosm, and of course we can... Uh, at other point, we can go into into details uh, how 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 it is exactly uh, for Plotinus. But I, I think if if we put it this way, I mean, someone might say, "Well, that's that's nice. It's that's a very general view of things." So the, the human being is a part of the of the order. There is there is no problem with that. I mean, we can easily imagine that we are intellects who are embodied. So we, we possess also souls and we possess uh, the bodies. We use those bodies, even though we are obviously different from them, distinct from them, and we are incorporeal, while the body is, is obviously a material, corporeal thing. So, I mean, what's the problem? The fact that we are embodied from this perspective is not something bad. That's a necessary and natural way of things, because... And, and Plotinus here is very, uh, actually, he's very clear that we shouldn't think about this, what, what might be called a descent of being, descent of reality from the first principle. That is, the expression of the first principle as the many. We shouldn't think about this as, as some kind of evil. We shouldn't think that it would be better if nothing existed apart from the good. So the whole order of things is natural. It's good, it's beautiful, as Plotinus often emphasizes. So uh, we might say, so why are we not seeing this or why are we suffering? Why, are, why our human world is such a horrible place, which, of course, Plotinus also acknowledges and, and sees. So here we come to the, to the other perspective. And uh, actually, Plotinus is talking about Plato as the first one who who presented us with those two two pictures or, or those two perspectives. And Plotinus, in one of his treatises, uh, 4.7, he uh, expresses his puzzlement over the fact that his master, Plato, in his dialogues, gives us two contradictory ways of seeing the embodiment of the soul. Uh, namely, in the, the dialogues such as the Phaedo and the Phaedrus, particularly, the embodiment is described as something undesirable, undesirable to, to put it uh, mildly. Plato says that the body is, the, is a tomb or a prison. We are in it, imprisoned in it like in a shell. We suffer because we are in the body. And in those dialogues, Plato clearly 
says that it is better for us not to have a body at all. And if we are disembodied, then we are living natural life, we are happy and so on. But Plotinus says there are other dialogues, or actually the dialogue, the Timaeus, in which Plato says something completely different. He says that the embodiment is a part of this natural order of things. God, the creator, wanted us to have the, the body and we are to be caretakers of our bodies. We are to govern our bodies, to direct them, to use them for the benefit of the whole reality. So the fact that we have the body in the Timaeus is not something bad. It's not a result of some sin on our part or some mistake or, or something like this. And Plotinus himself says that's a problem because <laughs> which of those two images is the correct one? And uh, he sees the tension and he tries to deal with that. My interpretation would be that Plotinus sees the Timaeus as this macrocosmic objective description of things where the embodiment is something good and natural. But he sees the Phaedo and the Phaedrus, those dialogues by Plato, as descriptions of what both, both Plato and Plotinus, they call the fall of the soul, which is something clearly different from the natural creative process or the descent of being. Okay, so um, I love how you've pointed out attention in Plotinus because he is a very fruitful author to read for tensions, right? He's not systematic in, this, in the sense that he's trying to iron out everything and make it so that there's one positive statement you can make on every subject. He's very invested in looking at things from different perspectives and sometimes the answer changes depending on which perspective you're looking at it from or which level of reality you're looking at it from, right? So that allows for this picture that you've, you've drawn, allows for him to do something very late antique, um, which is to say that there's something in some sense, even though his picture of the universe is a kind of necessitated natural outpouring from the one, it couldn't be any way different than it is, I think. Um, nevertheless, there's still a way in, of talking about something going wrong this idea of tolma that he brings in in a few treatises, this idea that there is a problem that needs solving vis-a-vis -vis where humans are at. Yes, exactly. And uh, I, I started from the top, so to speak, from, from the good and from the macrocosmic descent and, and, and the, the process of creation. And it, that, that's uh, uh, one of the standard ways to talk about Plotinus. The other one also... Uh, quite feasible and justifiable is to start from our condition as it is right now. So we can start from, from the bottom. And, and here the picture it changes dramatically because we find ourselves as unhappy, suffering, uh, submitted to all sorts of constraints, enslaved to the matter, to our body, doing things we, we don't want to do committing evil, and, and, and all those things uh, are also in the Enneads. Plotinus describes a horrible situation or, or even a horrible world as it is seen from the perspective of our present fallen condition, and he thinks of philosophy as a way out of this, uh, and in a way, as a, as a journey from this, this fallen perspective to the 
to the objective perspective, to the perspective of the world as something good and, and beautiful and to finding our place within this, this great order. And you mentioned tolma, which, uh, which in Greek means something like audacity or, or pride. Plotinus in, in, in a couple of places, most uh, notoriously in, in Treatise 5, one, in the very beginning, he says that the source of evil for us is tolma, this audacity. And he defines it pretty specifically in terms of experience. He says that we, in our natural condition, we as souls or um, intellects, because I, I think it's, it's, it depends on the way you, you look at it, in any case, as, as being above the material realm, superior to it, we live in a kind of a community of, of spirits or community of intellects or community of souls in what he calls the, the house of our father, God. So we live there together, contemplating the intelligible world, contemplating God, and also being in a community uh, with others. And then we make a horrible move, we make a horrible mistake, which is we decide that it's better for us to be independent, to be individuals. But here comes a paradox. We are already individuals. Plotinus doesn't believe that we are uh, fused with each other or fused with, with uh, the good or the universal intellect. We are always retaining our individuality. In fact, Plotinus insists that the whole philosophical journey wouldn't make much sense if our individual self or personhood would just disappear at some level. So it is always there. But Tolma can be seen as an exaggerated way of experiencing our individuality. So it's a excessive individuality when we put so much emphasis on the fact that we are separate beings or separate selves that we lose contact with others, with God, with the whole intelligible reality, and so, so Tolma is, is actually a very complex process of asserting boundaries between ourselves and the whole reality, which has catastrophic consequences. Now, this takes place at the level of news, right? So, which is where we are when we're not embodied, it seems to me, in Plotinus. It's, he, he sometimes says that maybe some of the souls of a more material focus don't between incarnations they don't go to the news they they kind of circulate around in the world soul in the celestial regions but let's say we being like the soul of socrates which may also have been the soul of pythagoras as he he mentions in one treatise we are between incarnations we're up up as it were in the noose so we are no ace we are each a noose but within a noose and we shouldn't look at that as little tiny nooses inside a big container. It's like everything is interpenetrating at, the, at that level. So we're all, in some sense, the noose, but we have some individua individuation. Do you think what happens then, if, we, if, we're, if we're to bring different treatises of Plotinus together, is this a case where, because we know it at the level of intellect, the, the five um, greatest kinds from Plato kind of are the equivalent of the categories there, right? So you have motion and rest, sameness and difference, and uh, being. Are we then just going too far in the direction of difference? 
Yes, that's exactly what uh, what I would say. So we might say that uh, those two, the the, the the kinds are are in pairs, basically. At least, uh, where being is a kind of a primary kind, and then uh, Plato uh, enumerates in the Sophists. In the Sophists, he enumerates uh, re first rest and motion, and then sameness and otherness or or difference. Uh, and uh, it's interesting that Plotinus changes the the uh, the order. He speaks first about motion, then about rest, when he presents the kinds always, and first about otherness and then about sameness. Because uh, I guess for Plotinus, motion and otherness have this potential of the fall in them, uh, while rest and sameness safeguard uh, at the level of, of intellect, uh, news, they safeguard the, the, the balance, so to speak, and the harmony. So I, I would definitely say that Tolma is moving too much in the direction of motion. That is change in in, uh, in plain English. Well, down here and it's change. Uh, up up there, there. Yeah, here, yeah, here isn't change. change. Then it's changeless change. As it's changeless life. Uh, it's Plotinus says that in intellect is just life. Yeah, uh, that, that that's it, and and we go too much into otherness, and uh, so we lose the the sense of sameness because in intellect there are those intellects, everyone is distinct other than than others, uh, but they are all the same intellect, so to speak. So that there is this balance. So the the, the fall of the soul is definitely. Uh, some kind of imbalance and an exaggeration on this part of motion and otherness. And I guess also we could say that it's an exaggeration or excessive focus on being mm, understood as the kind of objective part of ourselves. So because we are intellects in the sense we are the knowers, right? The, the, we are just the, the knowers or the seers while we also have the part of us which is known or seen, and being is just that. So again, if we emphasize too much ourselves as objects of knowledge, I guess this is also going into this direction, then we solidify, so to speak, and become almost as things to be controlled, to be possessed. Plotinus clearly says in, in Treatise 4.8 and also 5.1 that we are moved by the desire to control ourselves to to see ourselves manipulate ourselves and and this is this this downward movement and at the end of it we become you might say identified with our body or, or our organism so uh, it starts at the level of of intellect we don't need a body to to fall but then we fall into the body because the body and the material realm are places where as you said we find motion without rest, so we find change. We find otherness without sameness. So we find separate substances uh, existing in space next to each other. And we find being understood as a kind of objectified, reified thing. So this is where we end up. And, and Plotinus says that this is the, uh, I guess, the, the, the consequence of, of the fall, and it's completely unnatural to us. But when he describes the state of the fall, everyone probably reacts with saying, but this is exactly how we feel and how we uh, experience ourselves in the world. So, for instance, 
we feel that we are individuals, that we are separate from other people. We are separate from, from the world. That's one thing. The other thing is that we certainly locate ourselves somehow inside our body. Most people probably tend to think of themselves as being inside their head, somewhere behind the face or behind the eyes. So we look out to the world through our eyes, for instance, and we experience the world as being external to us, right? We, we, we feel that the world is outside and our language testifies to this, this experience. We, the, the world is outside. Uh, we are inside the body. We feel that we live in time in the sense we live in a present moment, which is this tiny space or tiny little event, always moving towards the next event, towards the future and leaving the past behind. This is natural to us. But for Plotinus, that's not natural to us understood as souls or, or intellects. Because if, this is very simple, actually, if you look at this, if we are incorporeal, if we are intellects, how can we be located anywhere? How can we be said to exist in our head or in our body as if we were material things. Our brain is in our head, but we are not in our head. We are, Plotinus says in, in 6, 4, 5, we are everywhere, actually, and nowhere at the same time as spiritual creatures. So uh, our so-called normal consciousness, and, and Plotinus, it, it's of course fallen consciousness or, or, or the fallen state, makes out of our us those tiny little things living in the body, in the world, completely cut off from the whole spiritual realm. And in the treatise 6.9, Plotinus says that it's like someone having feet in water, right? So we are someone standing, for instance, in a lake or in the sea. Our feet are under water. The rest of us is, is above the water. So what we think of ourselves right now as fallen beings is just our feet. Right. There, There is a a huge part of us, the, the majority of the majority, the, 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 the major part of ourselves is completely beyond the material realm. But we are not aware of this and we don't identify as this. So we narrowed ourselves down to our feet, basically, forgetting about all the layers we have, we are not conscious of right now. This um, recognition of an unconscious aspect of consciousness is of course one of Plotinus's great innovations or discoveries or reframings of epistemology right that really explores the fact that humans well like in his discussions of memory in 4.3 and 4.4 for example you can remember something but not know you remember it until you bring it to mind and then you think oh yeah that thing that happened to me that time you still remembered it but you didn't know you remembered it so he expands on that and says, well, look, we're not really aware of most of what's going on in our noose, let's say, or in our, in our psyche, which is fascinating. Yes, because, and in our body as well. Yeah. I think Plotinus is absolutely brilliant in his introduction of, of the unconscious because he, uh, his intuitions are basically the same as the, the so-called depth psychology developed in the 20th century. So he says, we are in the middle. So there, there are a lot of things which we are unconscious of, which go on below our soul. So here we can include all sorts of 
emotions, desires, fears, but also everything that happens in our body. I mean, our digestive process and the, where, the way our brain works. We are not aware of this, obviously. We would go crazy if we were. Yeah. So this is a whole field of, of, this, uh, of the unconscious, which is, we might say, irrational or below the, the level of, of the reasoning soul. And this is what, for instance, Freud introduced as the, 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 the very important uh, fragment of the unconscious because Freud believed it's what goes on there is responsible for, for psychological disorders and, and, and all sorts of psychological dreams. pathologies, yes, and, but also uh, dreams and, and, and other quite ordinary phenomena. On the other hand, his, his great uh, disciple uh, who broke with, with Freud at, at some point, Carl Gustav Jung, he said, well, there is a, a different sphere of, of unconscious, which contains things which are above our ego, our conscious self. And this is already in Plotinus. Like you said, there is a whole sphere of the unconscious, which is not irrational in the sense those are impulses, desires, fears uh, of, of irrational nature. No, th those are spiritual, intellectual realms within ourselves, which are beyond our, our uh, consciousness. So uh, Plotinus sees our consciousness, our fallen consciousness, as a, as a little space in between those two realms. But he is much more interested in Freud famously said that the the goal of psychoanalysis is to make the unconscious conscious. And Plotinus would certainly go for that, but he is not interested in the unconscious below the right. level of reason. Yeah, so so he's not a Freudian. He's more Jungian in the sense that he wants to make uh, the the higher unconscious conscious. Mm. Now, and just this is philosophy. I love it. And to add to philosophy, a kind of history of ideas discursus, I wonder if we can't say that Jung's psychology wasn't partly coming from, I mean, the fact that he was deeply read in various Western esoteric traditions. I don't know if he actually read Plotinus, but he certainly read many authors who whose intellectual lineage went back to Plotinus, either directly or indirectly. So he's drawing from this same fountain that Plotinus features very strongly in. Uh, while Freud was drawing mostly, it seems to me, from a kind of hardcore 19th century materialist fountain of, uh, you know, sort of consciousness is some yes. kind of mechanism. We got to figure out how it works. Yes, they were both highly dependent on, on German philosophy of the 19th century. And I would say that, that Freud is certainly closer to, on the one hand, Schopenhauer, the idea of the irrational impulse or desire which is the the ultimate reality and on the one hand uh, Nietzsche and and his also his idea of of unconscious uh, life which uh, is clearly for Nietzsche of of the irrational or non-rational uh, nature but uh, I think Jung is more in the lineage of let's say Schelling for instance the late Late Schelling is, is very much influenced by, by Neoplatonism. And in the later philosophy of, of Schelling, we have the idea of this dark abyss of the unconscious. But for him, it's not the abyss of, of our irrational impulses. It's 
of course, he also takes it from Jakub Böhme and and all all sorts of of sources that this this darkness of the unconscious is a very fertile spiritual source from which our intellect emerges and and uh, Schelling describes it in, in beautifully trinitarian way. I mean, the, the the darkness of the father gives birth to intellect, which is like the sun and love of the spirit is joining them together. So clearly, this Plotinian idea that the unconscious can be something higher than our rational consciousness, it went all the way down to, to Jung and, and his uh, analytic uh, psychology. So, so yes, I, I think uh, Plotinus may not be the direct source because the knowledge of the Enneads, well, it has to be, I guess it has to be studied to what extent various uh, authors were aware of, of the Enneads as such. But the ideas that Plotinus passed to, to next generations of thinkers, mm. pagan, Christian, Jewish, and, and Muslim, uh, they were extremely fertile. Like yeah. like the idea of of the unconscious that you you spoke about, and so and and, and I I said that philosophy maybe uh, simplifying things that philosophy is is trying to recover our awareness of those unconscious regions of ourselves, but actually Plotinus believes that that it is so. I mean that the goal of philosophy is is to reconnect with contemplative layers of our being which are always in us and we cannot lose them. And he introduce, introduces another paradoxical idea. In, uh, in uh, 4.8, he says, one time he says, well, now I have a very original idea because Plotinus didn't want to, to be original at all. He no. wanted to be a commentator on Plato and interpreter of Plato. But this is one point where Plotinus says, well, now I'm being original, pay attention and Plotinus says, I believe, unlike all the other philosophers who preceded me, I believe that our soul doesn't descend completely. It doesn't fall completely. It always remains in the intelligible. So this is the, another way to say that we are always, in a way, immersed in contemplation, but we don't notice it or we are not aware of it. And the task of philosophy in terms of spiritual exercises and and other instruments that philosophy has is to reconnect us with it, to make us able to own this contemplative part of our being, which is waiting for it. It's it's already there, as you said. We we have it and and don't have it at the same time. So I'm glad we got into the undescended self because it's important to nuance the discussion of the fallen soul with the undescended, unfallen aspects of the self as well to get a better picture a more just picture of what plotinus is actually proposing so you just mentioned spiritual exercises i guess this is the next topic we really want to talk about i know this is something you've given some thought to but if philosophy provides tools for getting back to well to bringing that higher self to conscious awareness as it were to becoming aware of it what are the tools in your view, yes, the the tools are quite rich, even though they are, of course, a part of uh, of oral tradition. That's that's a fair assumption, I guess. Uh, and this oral tradition of spiritual exercises can be found in the Enneads in in various ways. There are places in the Enneads which make it quite easy for us 
in the sense that Plotinus uses a pe- peculiar language, peculiar style, as if trying to 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 say to the reader, now now I'm going to give you an instruction how to how to practice, how to meditate. And we can always imagine there is a whole there is a whole tradition be- behind this instruction, and that in his school, Plotinus, in discussing things with his close disciples, he could obviously give much more detailed instructions and answer questions. That's that's also a, a, a reasonable assumption. So, for instance, Plotinus may say things like that: If you want to return to our fatherland or to the house of our father, the intelligible realm, you have to return to yourself, close your eyes, and not look at the material realm, for instance. So he uses the direct address to the reader. Uh, and in this way, he he gives this instruction. So, And, and there, there is a couple of passages when Plotinus does that. And, and I, I guess that's the easy part, because there are also places when he doesn't say specifically, you have to do this and this close your eyes or or do this or do that but he nonetheless speaks about spiritual exercises but they are so closely interwoven with with his philosophizing with his discourse that it can be noticed and it can be reconstructed but i, I think it was overlooked generally in in the tradition of of the platinian scholarship so Plotinus, for instance, begins with with instructions such as such as these: close your eyes, do not look. Or uh, he says in in one six, in five one, in the very last chapter, he says, if we want to become aware of our undescended self, we have to behave like someone who wants to listen to a particular voice very much, so he ignores all other sounds which are distractions. So we can picture that, for instance, in, in such a way, we are at a party, which is nowadays maybe not very, not very common way of, of spending our time, but we remember uh, those things, uh, yeah. parties. So <laughs> plenty of people, no, no so- social distancing, a lot of noise. And we are talking to a friend. And we want to listen to our friend. We have to push all the sounds into the background right we have to focus intensely on on the conversation with a friend but the music in the background other people talking we are in a way aware of them but we almost become oblivious to them we almost become unaware of this and we hear only this one voice we want to hear Plotinus says you have to do this in your meditation with regard to the intelligible realm. So you have to turn away your attention, practice in such a way to turn away your attention all the time for all the sounds, sights, all the sensations, all the sensible objects which constantly appear in our consciousness and demand our attention. We have to turn away from them and focus on the sound inside or the voice inside. So that's one metaphor. The other metaphor is to not look. So to close our eyes and to look within and to wake up, as Plotinus says, another sight which everyone has, but almost no one uses. So this is one type of spiritual exercise or meditation, which is kind of focus on our trying to distance ourselves from 
the world in which we live from our body, from our imagination and sense perception in order to realize that we are spiritual creatures, that we are incorporeal, that we are intellects or, or souls, and that we can uh, use our body and we can be aware of what is going on in our body and the material world. But uh, we are not part of this. And here Plotinus uses, I think, predominantly uh, the Phaedo, the, the, the Plato's dialogue, the Phaedo, where Plato says that uh, soul should remain alone, mone, which literally means alone or uh, solitary. And Plato says that we have to uh, separate ourselves from the body. And uh, the Phaedo sounds quite harsh on on the body and the embodiment. So Plato says we have to basically die while we are alive uh, because to die means to free ourselves from the body, become separate from the body. We have to gather our soul from all parts of the body to focus it and to separate it from, from the body. And Plotinus develops this in a, in a very interesting direction. He also says the goal of the spiritual exercises of this type is to become alone. But it doesn't mean that uh, we have to become socially alone or that we have to despise the world or we have to reject the world. And this is a very tricky thing because the language Plotinus uses, especially in, in the first treatise he wrote, 1.6, this is a very strong language. For example, Plotinus compares us <laughs> as embodied creatures to pigs wallowing in dirt uh, he uh, he interprets allegorically the episode from the Odyssey where the, the sources Circe turned Odysseus' companions into pigs and, and gave gave them some some pig food and, and, and so on. Uh, so Plotinus says we are like pigs. Not only we are wallowing in dirt, we like it. So this is ultimate degradation, and it's easily we can easily interpret Plotinus as thinking that the fact that we are in the body, the fact that we see the world, the world itself is dirty, it's mud, it's filth. But if we balance this against other places where Plotinus clearly says that the world is beautiful and the body is also beautiful and good, I, I think we have to interpret this not in the sense that Plotinus has something against the body and, and, and sensible uh, experiences he has something against our exaggerated attachment to it our excessive involvement in it so to become alone means to regain our freedom with respect to our body our emotions our imagination our memory and the and the world we have to become free but we can still interact with the world we can still still use our body perhaps even better if we are free now and not enslaved to it because Plotinus says in, in 4.8 that because of the fall we have great difficulty in interaction with our body because our body seems to take control over us so when we become more free and more alone in this sense we are we can use our body more freely and we can interact with the world and with the others so Plotinian meditation at first seems like leaving the world and entering our soul, forgetting about everything. But I think it's only a stage in practice. It's not the ultimate goal, 
to close our eyes and and give up on on the world completely as we know from Plotinus's life which was highly social right he he not only had his philosophic seminar but he was hobnobbing with various senatorial people and um he was the the sort of godfather for some kids so he was he was a highly social being he was surrounded by people all the time not to mention whatever slaves he might have had or wife that we don't know about who knows yes yes so so clearly we can we can use his biography at least uh, as an inspiration uh, in our attempt to to interpret properly uh, his spiritual exercises so so the one one type of meditation would be at least for for some time to to ignore sensible experiences to in order to regain a better sense of of ourselves as free and incorporeal subjects of all experiences and in in 51 he says that our body should remain calm uh, during this practice this is the only instance plotinus says anything about the role of our body in meditation which is of course a, a huge contrast with the eastern practices yoga and uh, and and in general eastern uh, eastern spirituality always puts a lot of emphasis a lot of instructions about the, the proper posture proper breathing and and so on but i think it's also the fact that now we have better access to the eastern traditions because uh, various teachers from the east they came to the west and they openly started to teach things which were not discussed openly so right so all the details of yoga which for us are things we can find on the internet were esoteric ones so when we think about plotinus i i think it's possible that he may have something more to say for for instance about the position of the body or breathing but he just didn't focus on it in in the enneads that's that's a hypothesis of course i Mm. we can prove it but but that's possible but one time he says that the body should remain calm so and of course it's it's kind of obvious that it's it's easier to 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 focus and to enter our uh, our consciousness deeper when our body is uh, is in in some kind of static calm it's not distracting position. us basically yes 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 so uh, so this is this one one type of of meditation when uh, where our goal is uh, initially to to become alone and then it seems that we can harmonize this experience with uh, with the experience of the world because Plotinus often emphasizes that the goal is n- not to follow the body and not to follow the sensible experiences rather than trying to control them or to suppress them. For instance, when Plotinus talks about virtues in 1.6 or in 1.2, he says that to be alone means that we do not keep company with emotions, with desires. He doesn't say we have to quench the desire or he doesn't say we have to get rid of emotions. No, we just have to sort of be ourselves and let our emotional reactions unfold naturally because they are a natural part of our embodiment. What is our problem is not that we have emotions, is that we follow them blindly, right? So, so we can imagine the, the the fruit of this kind of spiritual exercise as a kind of freedom and openness 
the awareness that we are something more than our experiences, than our sensible experiences. We are more than that and we are free from it, but we can allow them to, to happen. And Plotinus says that as a result, they tend to decrease. And, and he says that we experience peace. Mm. When we are left alone, we are at peace. So there is a transformation and healing of, of our emotional life, certainly, but not because we actively try to do something about it. Plotinus says it's like, uh, like having a great sage as a neighbor. So, so the sage is always there. So we try to behave not because we are afraid of some punishment or something like this, but uh, we just we are aware that this, this person is living there and we want to behave at our best. So our lower part of, of our soul is behaving better when we reconnect with our true self. Which is the sage, of course, right? The higher, the higher. Yes, in this is. analogy, of course, of course, we are with the inner sage. Yeah, yeah. We have to become aware that he lives next door. <laughs> really, Matthias, that's that's brilliant. Um, what I really like about your approach to this material is that you know so much work has been done and so much attention has been given to to these um, yogic and Buddhist meditation techniques that you allude to, and we know what they are with their meditation techniques, right? Or we think we know what they are anyway. They're, pra- they're spiritual practices, but that approach has hardly been given to Plotinus, hardly at all. You know, even the great Pierre Adot, who made the sort of rediscovery that what ancient philosophers were on about was, you know, sort of transformative practices, that a way of life that changes who you are, changes how you, how you function, rather than just thinking about what's true and what's false and this sort of thing. Even he doesn't really address these these problems with Plotinus, which it must be said are a little bit speculative because as you say, the the nuts and bolts of it are not there on the surface for the most part. Although you have found some intriguing um, little details like close your eyes and sit comfortably maybe, <laughs> but don't worry too much about what position you're sitting in as long as your body's not distracting you, this sort of thing. Um, so it's it's really, really great to think about this material from this perspective from what kind of techniques are are lying behind the text or might be lying behind the text. Yeah, another type of this is what I would call imaginative uh, exercises. I don't know if we have some time to to talk about those. Yeah, let's talk about, are you talking about like the sort of thought experiments, like the imagine a sphere and then take everything out of the sphere? thought experiments. They are actually imagination imagination or imaginative experiments and this is uh, again uh, this is uh, an example of virtual exercise which is widely recognized i mean it, it's hard to miss if you read 589 uh, plotinus says directly now picture in your mind uh, a great sphere and and picture in this transparent luminous sphere plants and animals and stars and the moon and the sun and everything and the sea and the earth and and he gives further in, instructions. So usually people reading Plotinus say, well, now this is the spiritual exercise. But what is rarely noticed is that this is only one instance of an exercise or of an instruction, which Plotinus gives also in other places, because this image of a luminous transparent sphere, which stands for, for the soul or intellect or, or our awareness, it can be found in, in, in various uh, places in, in 645, 
for instance, twice in 539. And in various places, Plotinus returns to this idea. So probably it was one of the exercises he, he was teaching to his students and practicing himself. And here it is clearly the use of imagination as the, the, the core aspect of this exercise in contrast with the exercise which we discussed before, which, which focuses on, on attention. I would say it's, it's uh, manipulating attention. Here it's manipulating, it's not, not a nice word, but uh, in, a, in a good way, manipulating imagination. Of course, also using discurs- discursive thinking and, and other faculties and memory, obviously. But, but imagination, and here an important point would be that for Plotinus, imagination means much more than for us, at least uh, in, in, in the common understanding of this word. To uh, fantastikon in Plotinus that could be uh, translated and sometimes is translated as representing faculty or faculty of representation. Because for Plotinus, imagination means all sorts of imaging. So this is this power in our soul, which is connected to sensible images. So it embraces memory. It embraces, of course, what we call imagination and the sort of active creating images of things we do not perceive right now. But interestingly enough, Plotinus believes that imagination is also involved in sense perception. When we perceive something, an image of this appears in our imagination or or this faculty of representation, Uh, which means that, to put it a little bit crudely, when I look at a tree, for instance, I don't really see a tree I am aware of an image of a tree in my consciousness or in my imagination because other animals, for instance, see the same tree in a different way. I mean, the colors, the size, all this changes depending on on who is is looking at it. So I have an image in in my imagination and through this image, I am in contact with the real material tree. And this image is in in me. It's not outside, right? So the tree as a material substance is outside my body. That's to be precise. Uh, the, the tree, the material tree is not outside of me. It's outside of my body. Right. And uh, the image of tree, which is what we experience, the image of tree is inside myself. It's in my imagination. So Plotinus uses imagination in order to draw us out of this quote-unquote normal state of consciousness in which we see things outside of ourselves. We see the huge world surrounding us and we are those little small things inside our head. In order to get us out of this, he uses imagination. So that's my interpretation at least, that he invites us to imagine all sorts of things because uh, in the end, the whole world we experience is in our imagination. Of course, imagination, strictly speaking, is uh, images we can control at will, right? While in, sense in perception theory. is what we, yeah, what we cannot control is sense perception. Or as Aristotle put it, sense perception is our images uh, or forms which are there 
when the object causing them is present. When the object is gone and images are still there, this is imagination. That's, right. of course, the, the, the classical definition. But Plotinus says, of course, this is the case, but those are two modes of our imagination. So if we, if we for example, imagine that the whole world is within our imagination, moving in it, and, and then we can slowly move towards the experience of the world as appearing within ourselves because it is us who are this transparent, luminous sphere. So we might say, first, we have to imagine things which we do not experience, and then in time, they become our experience. And in other places, Plotinus also describes, for instance, in 5.1, he says, we have to become this great soul, this pure soul, and we have to stop thinking that we are inside the world. We have to see the whole world as created by us. This is a very astonishing statement. Plotinus says that in when we enter this state of contemplation, it feels as if we were not only containing the whole world within us, it's, it feels like we are creating this from moment to moment, uh, which I would understand as our participation in this cosmic soul, because in fact, we do not create the real material world, but we create our own worlds, right? If we look at things, listen to things, we create them. So uh, again, to, to, to exaggerate a little bit and, and maybe offend the historians of modern philosophy, I would say that before Kant, Immanuel Kant, before Fichte, before the whole idealist tradition, Plotinus says, well, the world we experience is in fact our creation or co-creation with the world's soul. We do not see material things in themselves. We see images. We have to be careful about what it means. But in a way, we see those things in ourselves. The difference is that Plotinus does not believe that the world reflected in us is something diminished with regard to the world as it is in itself, right? right? This is our modern mm. understanding. Plotinus says it's exactly the opposite. So the world in our imagination, the world in us is ontologically truer, more intense than the world, the so-called external world. So this is an important distinction. I think this is the, the really big gap that, that we moderns have to make that we moderns who grew up after the Enlightenment in, say, the Western world have to make to get into the head of, of a Plotinus is it's not that there's a real world outside us, the real world of trees that you can bump into and stuff. That's reality. And then inside us, we have a kind of movie that's, you know, an approximation of the real world. It's quite the opposite. The, the, the so-called real world is an approximation, is a kind of movie based on the noetic world which is the absolute bedrock of reality, even though it's not material, or because it's not material, right? Mm. Yes, yes, and, and Plotinus actually is speaking of this in terms of direct experience, right? He is not only uh, saying that we have to understand things differently. Of course, that's the beginning, that's the important part of it. But he says the, the, the goal is to completely transform our experience of reality. And in 645, he says, for instance, that when we begin matter or the material world or what he calls onkos, the bulk, the big mash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he says that at the beginning, it seems large, 
while the intelligible realm, like we associate it with thoughts, with with forms, it seems small to us. So that that's our initial experience. The material stuff is the real, really real stuff. While, you know, thoughts, imagination, this is something weak in comparison to it, right? It's, that's, that's something not entirely real. Plotinus says at the beginning that that's our experience. But when we wake up to our soul, it becomes the other way around. He says what was large, now we see that really this is very small. The whole bulk of the universe becomes small, while our soul and our intellect, they are perceived as really large. Of course, it's not physical largeness, it's not spatial largeness, but this is the, the reversal of perspective. So Plotinus says you can experience it through spiritual exercises. You can actually enter a state of consciousness when you do not see the world as this huge mass of things outside. No, the world is really small, Plotinus says, in power, because the power of our soul and our intellect is infinitely greater than the world which manifests and expresses this power. Hmm. So then this brings us back to separation from the body or not concentrating on the body, because of course, the person who's fixated on their body is going to say, you know, you can't tell me the world is small in power, because if that bus runs me over, I'm going to die and get smushed. But if you can sit, if you've got to a place where you think the body is fairly inconsequential in the grand scheme of who you are, then you'd be like, yeah, the bus can kill my body, but what's your point? Like, mm. Of course, buses, you know, of course, if you fall into a volcano, your body will die. But like, big deal. The volcano and the body are both just some material arrangements of, um, of form plus matter. And we're not so interested in those particulars when we can get to the universals. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, and and the the form is is and its relation to matter is is a key thing here. If I can give another example of of spiritual exercise, Im imaginative spiritual exercise from five eight two, Plotinus says that we can do a simple experiment. We can imagine a thing. It, I, I guess at this point he speaks about a statue, uh, like like a sacred statue in a temple. And Plotinus asks all sorts of interesting questions. I mean, how the, the statue being so big enters through our eyes <laughs> into our consciousness. Of course, if the, the, the statue we see is able to shrink and, and get through the eyes, it means that it has to lose its mass or its bulk or its material conditioning. So Plotinus is leading us to the recognition that in principle, the whole reality is in form, not in matter. Matter is just the principle of limitation, weakening. Matter is just matter. Today we think of matter as stuff, things, and, and so on. For Plotinus, matter is just this, this principle of limitation and, and weakness, ontological weakness, while all reality is accounted for by the form. So, for instance, I can I, I see the statue, maybe I think it's outside of me and so on. But now I can imagine the statue. I can make it bigger and smaller. And Plotinus says, make the statue bigger and then make it smaller in your imagination. I mean, what's the difference? The colors are the same. The proportions are the same. This is the same statue of the same god, Athene or Aphrodite or whatever. And if it is a beautiful statue, the beauty does not diminish if we shrink it or we make it large. And this kind of exercise 
enables us to experience that the fact that really the form is important. And all those arguments so fashionable today telling us, well, the earth is so small in the universe. And in the YouTube, you can see those movies when they, they, they tell you how small the earth are, are, is in comparison to the universe. I mean, okay, but <laughs> it is supposed to tell us that our soul is small. That's completely ridiculous. Uh, it doesn't have uh, anything to do with our soul. Of course, the earth is very small, but it could be infinitely large. It doesn't matter because the form is not dependent on the amount of stuff. And so Plotinus is, is leading us to the experience where really we are not intimidated by the infinity of the, of the universe because we know that our consciousness is always greater than the universe. Boom. Thank you very much for coming on the Schwepp and talking about Platinian spiritual practice. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure and, and thank you for having me here stay esoteric. <laughs>